From the Freedom HealthWorks Network, this is Healthcare Americana. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Stock, owner and physician of Pure Health Functional Family Medicine. When you know that the guy who has your contract and can financially punish your family greatly is counting the number of referrals that are coming from your office, if you think that that doesn't eat into the back of a doctor's brain and change his recommendation of who the best endocrinologist for you to see is, then you don't understand the function of brains the way I understand the functions of brains. And I don't want anybody to think that their family doctor sits around destroying his patient's health for profit. But in the back of their brain, they are always having to make the choice between what's good for my family and what's good for my patient. One of the beauties about direct primary care is that the only thing that's good for my family is what's good for my patient. And now, here's your Healthcare Americana host, Christopher Habig. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, where we discuss the true meaning of healthcare. Today's guest, Dr. Dan Stock, owner and physician at Pure Health Functional Family Medicine. Thanks for joining us today. More than my pleasure. And by the way, for the audience out there, I know you might not be able to see us, but Dr. Stock is an impeccable dresser, so I just <laughs> want to call that out there. And so I appreciate you really classing up the joint today. I think we should probably uh, thank my wife for that. She pretty much does it granimals for me and dresses her prize poodle up nicely. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dr. Stock, let's uh, dive right into this. And, and I wanted to get really your experiences and your background in medicine and uh, tell the audience who you are and, and why you do what you do. Ah, well, um, I've been in practice a little over 30 years. Um, started off in the traditional third-party payment system. I was a little uncomfortable with the things, the way things worked in that system. It wasn't terrible when it started off because, you know, the insurance companies and the governments and the hospitals and all that really weren't too involved. You had to spend a lot of money to get money out of them, but they didn't at least tell you what advice to give, which was good for me because I always kind of had a different opinion of what I think the average patient wanted a family doctor to be. Most family doctors are kind of given the impression through their training that as a family doctor, you don't have to really be good at anything. You're just not allowed to stink at anything. Um, And I kind of had a different view of what I wanted to be, which is I wanted to be the expert of common disease. So if it was a disease that happened in a lot of people, I wanted to be able to sit down with a specialist and discuss high blood pressure and its management and all of that. Problem was, is the healthcare system became more and more interfered with with third-party payers. And they started to decide that, um, you know, we needed doctors to give out the advice that was going to keep everybody on the budget. (laughs) Those of us who are trying to be experts and think outside the realm of family doctors started getting our getting crimped. The rules made it so you had to go faster. You weren't allowed to think very deeply. Those of us who decided we were just going to ignore the rules and do do it anyway became unprofitable until eventually the third party payment system invited us to go away. <laughs> I like that. Invited you to go away. So you, you mentioned something there that was that was unique and interesting to me. Saying I am a primary care doctor, and yet you were you're saying this as a primary care doctor. There are certain aspects where you really wanted to specialize in and become an expert in. That is something we don't hear every day because a lot of people say, "Well, I'm a primary care doctor. I'm a generalist. I need to, like you said, I know a lot about these types of things." So you know a lot about a wide array of conditions, diseases, all this kind of stuff, but then yet you still decided to focus on some particular aspects of those diseases. Now, why is that? Well, probably because my job is to bore people to death. I'm one of those really boring people who's a biochemistry geek. (laughs) I found most doctors in my career kind of view basic sciences as this thing they have to get through to go into medicine, where I was kind of viewed them as the tools that I get to use when I'm in medicine 
to do that kind of deep thinking where you get down to the very roots of, hey, what's the biochemical difference between a patient when they're sick and a patient when they feel good, you, you kind of have to spend a lot more time to do that. I, I, I like fixing things, but I want to fix them as completely as I can. So if you had a disease like high blood pressure, when we were always taught in medical school, well, the thing to do is to find out they've got the disease and then do something about it. You don't have to cure it. You just have to treat it. And I've always kind of thought patients would, if they had their choice between treat it and cure it, would rather have the cure it. Right. But to cure it, you have to be able to look down at that very level of the biochemistry, the anatomy, the physics, the all basic sciences below it, which is something the third-party payment system doesn't really like you to do. It's not profitable. It's not budgetable. It's highly variable. And so I first started deviating from traditional medicine and the way it worked after I nearly killed a patient doing what I was told to do. I had a a 39-year-old guy uh, come in with some atypical-sounding chest pain, decided that, well, okay, your blood pressure's normal, you don't smoke, you don't drink, your family history's normal. Well, you know, one of the risk factors we can look at here is we'll get your cholesterol test done. Uh, So I got his cholesterol test done. I said, it's Wednesday, we'll see you back on Friday. The cholesterol tests come back, and they are impeccably beautiful. Nobody could argue that there's any problem with them. And uh, so I told the guy, in all honesty, you know, great, you know, Mel, I think this is going to look good. I don't think your chest pain is coming from heart disease. Well, you know, it came on while you were playing basketball. I probably ought to sit, get a treadmill on you on Monday. And if I'm going to get a treadmill, I kind of have to send you home with a bottle of nitroglycerin. But I'm pretty sure this is all me. I treat my lawyer, not treating you, so don't lose any sleep over it. Mm-hmm. And then Monday, I get a call from the cardiologist who's supposed to be doing the guy's treadmill. And he says, Dan, I want to talk to you about Mel. And I said, yeah, I know this is a pretty soft call. He probably doesn't need a treadmill. If you don't think he needs it, uh, just tell me he doesn't eat it and I'll be okay. And the cardiologist goes, huh, Dan, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that because I was calling up to see how you pegged this guy for having a blocked artery in his heart because that nitroglycerin you gave him was the only thing that kept him alive on Sunday night till we could stent the major artery of his heart. Wow. And uh, I went into a diaphoretic storm. I I looked like I was getting ready to pass out because in my heart's mind, I thought I'd done this guy right. Uh Uh-huh. And it just so happened, there was a drug step standing behind me who said, hey, Dr. Stock, what's going on? I told him about the case. And he said, well, there's this test you need to run on this guy. And that test actually measured cholesterol transport, not cholesterol levels. And I finally got the idea that there's some people who know stuff about disease far beyond what was taught to me in medical school. Mm-hmm. And that started me questioning a lot of what we had been taught in medical school and looking when somebody say, this is the reality. And well, you know, I think I'll hear a few other opinions of this reality because the reality these guys are talking about looks like it's more in depth and more at the level of the biochemistry and the physics. And that kind of from there on led me to, Hey, I'm going to go a little bit deeper in my investigation of all these problems. And uh, eventually led me to functional medicine, which is kind of dedicated the idea of getting down to the biochemistry of the difference between you healthy sure. and you sick and figuring out how to make you back to the biochemistry of healthy. Right, right. So I want to dive into a little bit because uh, you said it, it's always a very interesting concept and some things you said there you had. Now you have uh, you, you needed the time in the exam room with people to really get down to the root cause of it. But we hear so many times from physicians that hey, under the old system, I never got paid for actually curing somebody. The recurring income, recurring revenue model was that you treat this person, you keep them on the meds, you keep them coming back in the office because that's the only way you're going to make money. You don't make money if you're on call and you get something after hours. You only make money if this person is sitting, sacrificing their afternoon to come and see you. There's no insurance 
billing code for curing somebody? Um, you know, it's interesting. Back in the 50s and 60s, whenever they paid their doctor directly, mm-hmm. um, we paid them hourly rate. You still had an incentive to cure somebody because you were always terrified that that person was going to go find out some smarter doctor and then they'd never come back to you. So you still had a reason to cure them. But the third-party payment system has actually taken away any impetus of that whatsoever. And a lot of the reason that's happened is because the modern third-party payment system with uh, health insurance companies really isn't health insurance at all. It's a prepayment scheme for healthcare services. And when you're selling healthcare services, especially when with the Affordable Care Act told insurance companies that they could only keep 20% of the premiums they took in, they had to spend 80% on healthcare, then the only way they could make more money was if people bought more and more stuff. Well, that doesn't do well if you're curing people because then they quit buying stuff. It also doesn't do as well if they're buying stuff that's not on the budget because you have to keep them to that 80-20 split, so you want them on the budget. So while we used to have an impetus to try and cure people, and we doctors used to think it was wonderful to get to play sleuth and try and figure this out, present system says, look, that's not the way that we make the most money. That's not the way we keep things on the budget. And they have multiple different mechanisms for making sure that doctors don't do that. Um, almost all of them financially painful mechanisms to punish people who try and do something like think really deeply about your health and actually find a way to cure you. Or take too long with the patients. Well, that's one of the ways they actually control it. I don't think most people know that uh, third-party payment, whether it's a government program or whether it's an insurance company program, um, that they pay doctors much better if they'll see 10 people for six minutes than if they see one patient for an hour. And by the way, it's not even close. It's about three times as much income you'll make if you see 10 people for six minutes versus wow. one patient for an hour. Strikes me as more of a uh, perverted uh, incentive. I would tell people it's like packing meat and sausage. <laughs> you don't <laughs> yeah. care what, you don't get any benefit. You don't from care what sausage. goes in just as long as this thing keeps coming <laughs> long, out, right? As long as sausage links are there at the end of the day. And of course, <laughs> when you're not going to get paid as well, to do anything in depth, you don't spend time. Mm-hmm. Um, in my practice of functional family medicine, most of my new patient appointments, if they come in with symptoms and complaints, they're going to be two hours long. Because by the time I figured out all the stuff I need to do so that I can try and solve their problem and figure out a way to get them well without spending a test for everything. You know, you can figure a lot of things in medicine. If you've only got six minutes, you start ordering tests like crazy. Mm-hmm. After all, your boss makes money on all the tests you order. That's another thing about the third-party payment system people don't know about. The uh, compensation of administration within hospital systems and the spending on administration faculty uh, and, and employees skyrockets compared to what is spent in their, their compensation for physicians in over fact, the, the last 20 years. I- Last time I saw the numbers in a family doctor's office, about 25 cents out of every doctor goes home with the doctor or his medical assistant. I think it's down to about 10 at yeah, this I wouldn't point. be surprised if that's, I haven't done it in the system about for a long time. I would not be surprised if it's yeah. down to 10 cents now because the rest of it is going on just trying to comply with all the rules of the system and then get your money that you think you have earned by doing all the protocols you were told to do and running through the sausage machine uh, to get your money out of it. And in a system like that, if you're a geek who likes to fix things, this is really punishing. Financially, you just can't make it work. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know that also in this system, that if the doctor isn't making money on every lab and x-ray and, mon- and medicine that he writes, and many times in functional medicine, even the supplements they sell, his boss is, and his boss has that doctor under a contract, 
that allows him to financially punish that doctor very badly if he doesn't order enough. So there may not be written quotas, but every administrator, every healthcare system around here knows exactly how much profit the hospital system is making from that primary care doctor. Yeah. And if you're not making enough scratch to make this work, well, then at that situation, we'll just invite you to go. We'll terminate your contract without cause. But when we do that, you still have to move 20 to 50 miles away. And you're not allowed to notify any of your patients where you're going. So pretty much we make you start over again and you don't have the money to, to start up a new practice. So we've got you doing the protocols and packing the sausage the way we want you to. And unfortunately, most of these protocols would have doctors order tests that they may change what they do, but they don't let them lead them to the cure. And doctors are ordering a whole bunch of tests that even if they were going to lead them to the cure, they order 10 times as much as what they need to order because they really never sat down and ask all the questions that a good detective would to find out where things were going. Instead of narrowing down the crowd of suspects, you know, now you're investigating the entire crowd with lab testing and all of which is getting coming out of the patient's pocket and people run out of hope and money before they get well. <laughs> exactly. And they're definitely afraid of attorneys coming and saying, you should have caught this in your six minutes. Why didn't you order this battery of tests that were very intrusive, very invasive and very expensive for the patient? And you're thinking, really? I'm the bad guy in this one? You know, it's actually kind of sad that the establishment of these protocols, which were supposed to, quote, define good medicine, unquote, actually gave doctors a reason to do mediocre medicine. Because as long as I did those protocols, I was legally protected. I did whatever the insurance company, the government says was the minimum I had to do as a doctor. And it's so going outside and thinking outside the box became something that wasn't only financially risky, it became legally risky because we had defined legally what good was as what was profitable. <laughs> and so it actually kind of discouraged people uh, from doing that. I know many of my functional colleagues, actually, we have special disclaimers that we have our patients sign off just as a way to try and ward off that, hey, look, the definition of medicine isn't good just because it's profitable proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really sad to see that legal proposition that has been damning the system because Defining good the way the third-party payment system has defined it is now given doctors legal cause as well as financial cause to not go any farther than what the protocol says. Right. It's a mess. We always joke, um, before we move on from this segment, we always joke that for some reason, non-competes exist for physicians, yet they don't exist for attorneys. It's always yeah. very curious, right? Yeah. Very curious. You know, it's, it's a, one of the beauties about direct primary care. Um, you know, it, it, first of all, it got rid of that incentive because uh, now I had to be the smartest doctor or you'd move on again, all right? Because you it's can do It's a supply that. and demand issue. If, if you're yeah. not meeting my needs, I'm going to go over here to what would right. be your comparator. I can tell you in the third-party payment system, you can look at your patient and say, yeah, look, I might be a moron doctor, but so is every other doctor who will take your insurance. So look, you're And you can't see me. them until right. three more weeks, so right. might as well yeah. uh, finish up here, right? And why would you? They're going to do the same thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um so it didn't overcome the, the motivation to be a good doctor. And the direct primary care thing actually overcomes the, the legal impetus to order everything necessary. Because in the direct primary care thing, you don't just get people well. You have to get people better and well for the least amount of money. Because if my competitor is over here and he can get you just as well as I can, but he can do it for $15 less, He's a better doctor than I am. Well, if that $15 is to pay off for a bunch of unnecessary tests to keep the lawyer at bay, well, now I've got a reason not to just do that because what if my competitor decides not to keep the lawyer at bay? 
Now he can get you well cheaper. And so it solves both of the perverse incentives, financial and litigious, that the third-party payment system is amped up on physicians. Right, right, right. So we started talking a little bit about patients and their experience uh, within your practice. Um, I wanted to take a step back and, and dive into what your motivations were and how you got to this point. You said a long time, you've been in practice for 30 years. You said you haven't been dealing with third-party insurance for a long, long time. What was it that happened where you said, I can't be in the system anymore professionally because you had some personal interaction uh, more on the patient side yourself? Well, actually, there's been about three different things that led up to that. Um, The first one was I got sick. Um, I can tell you as a doctor, you really try to be compassionate and think about, gee, what it would be like if I were sick. But then when you finally get sick yourself and you go into the system, you begin to see some of the really ugly things about this. So I developed a hip disease called femoral acetabular impingement. It was not diagnosed probably for the, let's see if I do the math real quick, the first 12 years of the disease. Um, there 12, had all, 12 years? 12 years, yes. By the time I started having symptoms, uh, the disease had already been cured. Uh, the hockey player, Merrily Mew, had it. He was the first guy who had surgery, remedied the problem. There was a orthopod in Indianapolis, knew anything about the condition. By the time I finally read in a medical magazine about the condition and realized that might be me, it was already too late to save my hips. In the meantime, the terrible pain that came from that made my brain run the testicle wrong. And at the time I was diagnosed with low testosterone at the age of 46, I was found to have a level less than an 85-year-old man. And I got the pleasure of having an endocrinologist tell me the explanation for that is your age. (laughs) Uh, Somebody actually said it was your age. Uh, yeah. You're, you're 40 years advanced here <laughs> in your levels, and it's because you're too old. Wow. That's, yeah. that, that was just as satisfying to me as the orthopod who told me that the reason I had hip disease was I played lots of sports. Now, at the time I was 36 years old, I didn't even start playing hockey till I was 29. And I'm like, well, there are professional hockey players in their 40s who've been playing this since they were kids. Why don't they all have hip disease? This doesn't make any sense either. That's interesting. Yeah. And and then I began to really realize, you know, this system isn't making people think very deeply because on the very blush of these statements, it was, that's nonsense. I mean, if you just sat a second, you'd say, this made no sense. So as I began to think outside the box and one more thing's done, you started to feel the system pushing back on you. Well, Dan, that's not what we do about people who have hip arthritis. Okay, well, you know, but there's data that says I'm going to get cured. Well, they're assuming that it's the arthritis too. They're finding the easiest answer right. and you the know, quickest one to shuffle you out the door, run some tests, get paid, make some money off of that Yeah, for their bosses most likely, right? Yeah. Or and then you know. if it doesn't work, we'll see you again and we'll take another shot at this. So Meanwhile, it, you're in pain. Yeah. You have a lot of questions. Wow. So I, in fact, in one of those things, I, I got the horrible experience of sitting down with an orthopod because by the time my hips were unsavable, there were two surgeries that could be done to, re, to take care of this hip problem. You could have a traditional hip replacement and you could have this procedure called a femoral, acetab- femoral head resurfacing. And that one would allow you to continue playing sports, including impact sports. So I begin to sit down with an orthopod who only knows how to do the traditional hip replacement. And I said, tell me about the risks and benefits of these two different procedures. And his answer was, well, femoral head resurfacing is becoming more popular in Europe, but it's becoming less popular here in the United States. And I actually had to stare at the guy with the, okay, I really wasn't asking for a popularity rating. I was wanting no risks and benefits. 
And the guy said, you know, I don't recommend them to people. And it came out as because he didn't know how to do one. And he was, <laughs> didn't really want to have a discussion about a treatment that he couldn't make any money Did he on. ever explicitly say that? or was No, that just he never explicitly said it. But I had dodged. another patient of mine who saw that same orthopod um, and had a traditional hip replacement done. And, and this patient of mine had been a regularly exercising person who had the same disease I had. Um, and unfortunately, he saw this orthopod and was never offered a femoral head resurfacing had a traditional hip replacement done and it went badly. And this patient of mine did very badly. And finally, when he was over this horrible rehab he had gone to, which ended up being eight weeks of, of hospitalization, sat down with me, came back to my office and said, boy, you know, I understand you had hip surgery. How are you doing? I was like, well, I'm doing great. I'm probably about six weeks away from playing hockey again. And this poor patient's face just went ashen. And he said, how's that going to happen? And I said, well, I had ephemeral head resurfacing done. You can play sports or that. And if you could have seen the look on this poor gentleman's face when he said, why didn't my orthopod ever talk to me about that? And I looked and the orthopod he'd seen was the same one I'd seen. And I'd seen him about six months before that. So I knew the orthopod knew the procedure was available. And the best I could do was look at this patient of mine and say, you'll have to speak with the doctor about that. I really don't understand why you weren't offered it. I can't tell you his motivations, even though I had a strong feeling that his motivations were, well, you know, I don't really think I have to tell you about all your alternatives, only the ones that I know about. Yeah. That was the first time I got to see this system um, wow. kind of screw up because the, well, the reality of orthopedic surgeons right now, the government and insurance companies pay surgeons much more per hour to be in the operating room and cut on people than it does to be in their office and give them advice because that's the way the dollar value has been assigned in the system. We have given surgeons a great reason to cut on people at all costs. Even if they don't need it. Even if they don't need it. And even if there's another opportunity that they would get better treatment with, but it's not the one this particular doctor makes. Right. Um, the second way this one started to bite me, bite me in the hiney was when I started looking at this low testosterone thing. Because when I started asking people about, well, you know, gee, what did this? I didn't have mumps when I was a kid. I had no trauma to my testicles. Um, and then as I started reading data about, hey, the major problem with most people with low testosterone is the brain isn't running the testicle right anymore. And I talk with the endocrinology community and say, well, you know, shouldn't we do something to figure out why my brain isn't running this? Like, no, you just take testosterone, which, by the way, didn't work anyway. Um, and then when I started coming back to them with, you know, I don't want to do that. I think we ought to do something to figure out why my brain isn't running the testicle right and fix that. And here's some things I want to do. And the pushback was enormous. Uh, you could, first of all, feel like they didn't really want to talk to me about this because darn it, that wasn't in the budgeted time we had here today. And it made me pretty much decide, look, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to start studying and reading and eventually led me to the people who had done functional medicine and kind of had an explanation why all this was going down to begin with and could put these pieces together. Unfortunately, the, the present third-party payment system because the causes of diseases like low testosterone in a healthy male who's otherwise healthy and femoral acetabular impingement are highly varied, therefore they're very hard to budget, this isn't something that third-party payment is at all interested in having get addressed. And so we actually now pay doctors better to think much more superficially than if they take the time to go dig down to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And it was realizing that the third-party payment system, that the definition of good health care was no longer being defined by the patient on the table. 
Uh, the financial definition of good health care was entirely being run from the government and the insurance companies. I realized there was going to be no way to do the level of analysis and the quality of care that I had learned how to do through functional medicine and do this through third-party payment. Um, it would just never be reimbursable, and I would the practice couldn't stay open. I'd either have to go back and doing the meatball sausage stuffing that was profitable, right. or I'd have to get out of third-party payment. Right. Do you think that being a physician, if you weren't a physician— would you have found the same conclusions? Probably not in nearly the time it, it took me. I mean, if you haven't been in the system and you haven't seen the discussions that go on, and I have the distinction of having been on a hospital physician board, um, I would tell you the name of the hospital that was on, but there's a clause in the contract that says I have to deny having a contract with them because hospital systems don't really like patients to know that this is going on. Um, but I got to watch those discussions about, well, the government and insurance companies have decided this is good health care. The hospital will go bankrupt if we don't do it. That's another thing about the economics of third-party payment most patients don't know, and that is that every hospital loses money on every Medicare and Medicaid patient that walks in the door and they barely break even anymore on the insured people. All the money is being made to keep a hospital open on the outpatient side. And then that's why they started hiring doctors and giving these restricted covenants because they needed the doctor to generate money on the outpatient side to keep the hospital open so the CEO could have that very nice paycheck that health network CEOs get nowadays. And so with that understanding that, wow, you know, were you kind of using primary care to keep disease management alive, you see there's yet a third perverse uh, incentive put into the system. Mm -hmm. Plus it acts as a feeder to keep people within that system. Although legally you're not supposed to do that, right? But I mean, how many physicians are within a hospital system that refer out of that system? Well, I can tell you- when, Very few. When, when you know that the guy who has your contract and can financially punish your family greatly if you don't behave, is counting the number of referrals that are coming from your office, all right, and knows every time you refer somebody out, because these electronic medical record systems can tell them when you referred somebody outside of the network, and you know it's being counted. If you think that that doesn't eat into the back of a doctor's brain and change his recommendation of who the best endocrinologist for you to see is, um, then you don't understand the function of brains the way I understand the functions of brains. And I don't want anybody to think that their family doctor sits around twirling his mustache knowing that he's destroying his patient's health for profit. Most of it, the doctors are really hate this system. But in the back of their brain, without them knowing it, they, re they don't realize they are always having to make the choice between what's good for my family and what's good for my patient. And I would tell any patient out there, who do you think wins in that competition? Another word for doctor is human who has all the same motivations that you have, all right? You wouldn't kill off your family for your doctor's sake, all right? One of the beauties about direct primary care is it moves it so that, look, the only thing that's good for my family is what's good for my patient. Right. Um, and getting yet another problem of these perverse incentives of the healthcare system solved. Right. And having seen the discussions that went on at the level of a healthcare network and what we were willing to sacrifice to make sure that this system would survive the, the disregard that was just very commonplace. Oh, well, you know, yes, it's not the best thing for patients, but it's what we're going to do. I don't know that any patient who hasn't been in there and seen those discussions 
knew how medicine worked when they were when they got sick. If you were a doctor when you got sick and you knew how the system was going to function and then you saw the backroom discussions that went on with it, you wouldn't learn this probably until it was much too late for you as a patient to get the same outcome you would have had. Maybe you don't learn at all unless some doctor comes out and tells you guys, look, this system's really sick. Right, right, which is, I mean, how often does that happen? Probably almost never. I had a good talk one, one time with a, uh, a hospital chief medical officer. I said, Doc, how does your hospital system define the term quality? And he looked at me. He said, Chris, it is whatever the insurance company and CMS, Medicare, tells us it is. And that is so truly the case. And I go, and I go you, know, you know how clients of Freedom Health Works, people who are in direct primary care, you know how they define quality? He goes, how? I go, whether or not they come back and pay you next month. That's entirely right. And he just shook his head. He's like, it's so simple. It's brilliant. So I want to talk about your practice uh, on the last part of the show here. So tell us a little bit about Pure Health Functional Family Medicine. Um, Well, we're a direct primary care and functional medicine practice, which is kind of a way of saying that, look, um, you come into me with a common disease I'm going to dig down and try and find the biochemical differences that make this thing as curable as it can be Um, until we're at the point where I can tell you with biochemical certainty that I can't do it anymore. I'm going to keep offering you options to get through that. Um, One of the distinctions about my practice in functional medicine, um, most functional medicine doctors, when they recommend a test, some of the esoteric tests we do, they're marking up that test sometimes 100%. And many times they sell supplements from companies that won't sell to the patient at the same price they'll sell to the doctor. And they sell it to the doctor at half price and the doctor marks it up. And I guess I'm of the opinion that we, we doctors in general, we sell advice for a living. But when doctors can make money on the stuff they give people advice about, it tends to change the advice they give people. So for my own intellectual protection so that I can sleep well with myself at night and so that my patients don't run out of hope before they get well, we have an agreement in all of our contracts with our patients that I will make no profit on anything I give them advice about, whether medicine or supplement, x-ray, referral, laboratory. Um, If you can buy it cheaper through me than you can buy it on your own, you buy it through me at my cost. Um, It's financially neutral neutral to me and my family. which kind of gives me the opportunity to sit down. And since I don't have anybody making rules for my practice, except my patients, <laughs> um, that they financially get their definition of good health care and they get to assign the dollar value of that definition of good health care. Um, you know, we tend to give people the impression that health care is free. And I tell them, well, there's nothing in the world that's free. The problem isn't that it's not free. It's that you don't get to decide what the price of the, of the thing you're buying is right? and whether it's worth that or not. And in an open market system like direct primary care, the patient gets to make that decision. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point and, and something I thought that, that caught my attention. And I like to tell people this, that, that healthcare as we know it, when people talk about the healthcare system or as we like to call it, the healthcare industry, it's an industry. It's not a sin to make money. It really isn't. And sometimes we have to get that across to uh, physicians who just want to help people. That's why, you know, medicine is a calling. Healthcare is a calling. Um, but within that, it is not necessarily that healthcare is too expensive, that nobody knows what the actual prices are. There's no insight in it. There's no transparency. The numbers, the big numbers that we see that's a fifth of the economy right now, is that the price of healthcare or is that the actual cost of healthcare? 
In fact, I can tell you it's not. One of the examples I like, I like to give people, uh, there's a blood test on the end of ordering for many of my patients called a TGF beta-1. So if you walk into one of the local laboratories here in town and say, hey, I'm going to get a TGF beta-1 done. So the list price on that test is 360 some odd dollars. And if you flop down your insurance card, uh, the charge to your insurance company would be 360 some odd dollars. There's a negotiated price, which probably cuts the price down by a half to a third. Uh, so maybe we're down to around 100 some odd dollars. So if you as a patient said, well, okay, laboratory, look, um, I don't want to put this through my insurance. I'm going to pay you cash. Well, the laboratory is allowed to give that list price about a 20% discount. So now you'd be down to a neighborhood of around $280. That laboratory will sell that test to me, if you buy it for through me, for $13. <laughs> so you run the math with me. That comes up to somewhere between 15 and 30 times the price that it actually costs to do a TGF beta 1 is the list price. <laughs> now, you would think that your insurance company hates the idea the price is marked up, but healthcare now is a prepayment scheme and they're getting 20% of anything you buy. So they kind of like the price being up at 300 because they're getting 20% of 300 versus 20% of $13. Um, and, you know, that sounds like an extreme example. And I'll tell people that is on the, the, the far extreme of this but the average is probably running in the neighborhood to three to 10 times the cost. It's not 20% more in your third-party payment. It's three to 10 times more. So paying cash through your office, almost any type of lab test, any type of prescription, that type of, will almost pay for its membership to your practice. Oh. If it does not already, many times over, perhaps. You know, in fact, one of my patients actually paid me like the ultimate compliment. He said, you know, Dr. Stock, it's not just that I'm getting a lot better care than I used to get. I'm spending a lot less money. I wouldn't have minded spending all that money if it made me better, but I spent tons and tons of money and I didn't feel any better. Now I feel a lot better and I'm spending a lot less money. <laughs> he said, when I add up all the costs of all the labs and your services and all of that, you just don't order the things that other people order. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had to sheepishly grin and say, well, I have a little bit different economic incentive than the doctor who works for your local health network does. <laughs> well, there we go. So we were talking about defining quality. So there you go. You, your patients define your quality as getting better for cheaper. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing value that you're able to bring them. Um, mm -hmm. Real quick, I want to get your thoughts. Uh, I always like to ask guests, you know, what's next? Look in your crystal ball. What do you see? What's next for your practice? And then I want to get your thoughts on what's next. Where does this healthcare industry go from here, knowing that you're you're in the direct primary care movement and where it goes from, from this point? So the traditional health uh, third-party payment system is a Ponzi scheme and all Ponzi schemes blow up eventually. Um, and this one is moving that way very quickly. And I can tell you what I think the next thing that's going to fall is, is employers are going to realize that basically I am supporting the Medicare and Medicaid fraud system. Uh, so again, like I said, Medicare and Medicaid doesn't pay its bills. Every hospital will tell you that when I buy all the sponges and everything I need to run this place, I am not going to get back the money from the government for Medicare and Medicaid patients. So what's keeping this system floating is the wholesale pillaging of everybody who has private insurance. 
And in fact, the major reason for the Affordable Care Act was to force employers to continue paying for that because a lot of them were getting ready to stop buying insurance for their employees because it was just making them uncompetitive on the world market. So employers are now finding out that this Ponzi scheme is really getting even further out of control. It's eating more of their budget. And unfortunately, they have a way to get out of the system that they're beginning to find out about. In fact, a story I like people to know about, one of my patients is actually the CEO of a 250-person company here in town. And uh, comes into my practice, and I realized he needed some labs done. And I said to him, okay, well, um, I, need, I think you're probably going to want to have these four labs done. How would you like to pay for them? Do you want to run them through your insurance, or do you want to pay me directly? And he's like, well, I'm self-insured, so it's going to be the same one way or the other. And I said, oh, uh, no, Bob. Um, let me show you the difference. And on these four laboratories, I ran the difference in price if I were to bill it through his Anthem policy versus selling it directly. And it was a $400 difference in the cost of the labs on four tests. To which he said, oh, well, that's quite significant. And I looked forward at him and I said, times every employee in your company at every visit. Wow. And you could kind of see it set in. So many employers are beginning to find out that there are actually these uh, different types of policies that they can get that still meet the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, but they allow them to make a big medical spending account with sub-accounts for each of the employees. And what they do is they buy their employee a really high deductible plan, put the difference in that sub-account medical spending account. Because it's a uh, employer's medical spending account, it actually escapes all the requirements that the government puts on typical medical spending accounts. And now that employee can go out and get a direct primary care doctor without any financial risk involved. The problem is that when you do tish, you know, give a guy a third-party payment uh, insurance plan, his money to pay his doctor has already been taken out in his premiums, and he can only get a doctor who accepts insurance. So he pretty much has to buy advice through the perverted third-party payment system. Well, under this new thing, the employers actually can get out of the third-party payment scam where they're propping up Medicare and Medicaid. And as they realize that financially it is better for my patients, it's better for me, um, I can compete on the world stage, and therefore I can still give my employees a job, they're going to begin jumping out and getting these policies, and that's how they're going to insure their people. They're no longer going to get an Anthem or a Cigna or an Aetna policy anymore. Well, as that happens, this system is going to start to implode very quickly because the hospitals are going to die very rapidly. They can't make it on Medicare and Medicaid money. The studies have been pretty clear that when you get a direct primary care doctor, you're going to say that you are happier with your health care and spend 60% less on your care. One of the most shocking statistics from a study done on direct primary care was the number of surgeries that were done was reduced by 60%, yet the patient still said, my care is better. So that means that probably 60% of the surgeries in the country being done don't need to be done. Back to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, because the Affordable Care Act was written with the loophole that allows employers to get their employees out of this prepayment scheme, Um, I anticipate that more and more employers are going to start realizing this is better for everyone involved. Um, The only person who benefits from continuing to buy a a policy for your employees through Anthem and Aetna is the CEO of of Aetna and Anthem and the Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services in Congress, Um, many of whom none of us really care much about anymore. And they're doing pretty good without our help. And these employers are going to start saying, no, I go this different way. 
And I can tell you as that happens, patients are going to get healthier because for the first time, we're going to explain to them how much of their health is actually in their control. Uh, you can't do that in a five-minute visit. You can in a two-hour visit, right? Um, people are going to start realizing that, wow, I'm kind of having my disease maintained because it's profitable and the cost is hidden from me. Well, once the cost is no longer hidden from me, then it becomes motivating to actually try and fix these problems and they start changing their behavior in a meaningful way that has a benefit. Unfortunately, that's going to make the Medicare and Medicaid systems get worse much faster. And then I think, assuming our Congress won't just completely put its head in the sand, they're going to have to revamp those systems and we're going to find that they probably go away. And I anticipate you're going to see Medicare and Medicaid are going to realize that they have to allow Medicare and Medicaid patients to get direct primary care doctors and free doctors from all the requirements that come from, you know, being a third party payment physician. Um, that's what I see happening is that the, the scheme's falling apart rather quickly now. Right, right. Does it, is it worry you, as you said, that if Medicare and Medicaid patients are involved in direct primary care practices, do you have any faith that those plans won't be completely screwed up by trying to take control of them and stand in between a patient and a doctor? Well, in fact, I tell my, I have Medicare and Medicaid patients in my practice. Uh, they all sign a waiver that's required by law that says, you know, I'm not going to bill Medicare and Medicaid for the money. But most of them right now actually have the reason they're here is because they've said, look, this system isn't really serving me anymore. My Medicare patients will just tell you, look, if I try and find a doctor in the hospital, it turns over so quick, I can't keep one for more than a year at a time anyway. And when I wait to get into the next one, it's a nine month wait. And when I do get in the door, they all know they're going to lose money on seeing me. So I'm about as welcome as, you know, a leper. Um, they said, but, you know, I come to your practice, Dr. Stock, you actually seem to think just as much as me if you do of anybody else. Um, the only thing I would worry about is when a direct primary care doctor says, I'm going to sign a contract with Medicare and Medicaid. You just can't do that because as soon as you sign that, you're saying, hey, I'm going to follow the rules of Medicare and Medicaid. And those rules are you keep those guys on the budget because we're losing money on all of them and we got to stem the losses. So I anticipate that what will probably happen is that uh, the Medicare and Medicaid programs are going to be converted into medical spending accounts where in the case of Medicare, we give you back the money we've been stealing from you since you started to work. And in the case of Medicaid, we take all the money that we were going to supposedly give you as charity, making you buy what we thought was good health care. And instead, we're just going to put that money in a medical spending account and say, have at it, Medicaid patient, do the best you can. And the patient will do much better than he can through the present Medicaid system because he'll have control over the money. Again. Empowering consumers is a, an incredible thing within the free market. Uh, well, yeah, that's a heck of a crystal ball you got right there. So you've been looking at that for quite a while. So I'm glad I asked you about it. Well, Dr. Stock, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me over, Chris. I very much appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again for listening to Healthcare Americana. Always remember, you can visit us online at healthcareamericana.com. And for more information about direct primary care, visit freedomhealthworks.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Healthcare Americana. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podchaser, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends and colleagues to download and listen to all Healthcare Americana shows at freedomhealthworks.com. 